Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby, and today... We look at the latest policy idea from the UK's Labour Party. We'll reduce the average full-time working week to 32 hours within the next decade. It's been branded as too radical by many, but has John McDonnell got a point? Look at the history of this. In the 1860s, people worked a 65-hour week. And thanks to past Labour governments, but actually mainly thanks to the trade union movement, by the 1970s, the average working week have been reduced to 43 hours. As as society got richer, we could spend fewer hours at work. But in recent decades, progress has stalled. People in our country work some of the longest hours in Europe. And since the 1980s, the link between increasing productivity and expanded free time has been broken. It's time to put that right. But does it make sense? The pros and cons of a four-day working week. This week on the Debunking Economics podcast. Yeah, it's very easy, isn't it, to dismiss this idea as just being too radical. If you heard that announcement... Uh, at all, because uh, of course everything's been lost in the Brexit noise. But that was the UK Labour Party conference in Brighton this year, Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell outlining a slew of policy ideas, including this one, reducing working hours, so that within the next decade, we'll be working a maximum of 32 hours a week with no loss of pay. And you can imagine how that's gone down with Sunreaders, for example. Their comments, Labour are desperate, Labour are wrecking the economy, then this is the norm. Uh, they get it, do it every time they get in power. Nobody who listens to this fool's speech this morning could possibly contemplate voting Labour as a serious political party. They're finished. And companies would have to pay staff more to make up the difference and hire more staff to cover the extra day off. To afford this, companies would have to charge more. So we'll all be paying more for everything, meaning we'll have to work extra to afford it. Now, that's uh, that's the sun read. At least one had a go at trying to argue uh, against it, but um, rather than just the rhetoric. But I spoke to some of my friends on this as well, uh, Steve, and they don't get it either. Mind you, I do live in Surrey, so not exactly the hiding place for a secret Trotskyite cabal. But their view, Steve... And I think this is quite common, a bit like that, Sunreed. If you've got a four-day week with no loss in wages, then that's going to add to the cost for companies. That's going to make them less competitive internationally. So that's going to be bad for Britain, unless everyone everywhere else in the world does the same thing. Mm, yeah, this is, but this is one of the, um, the things. When you see it happening over time, you sort of wonder, have people lost sight of what is supposed to happen with a, a well-functioning social system over time? And... One of those things is we should all be feeling we're getting wealthier. And one element of where we're being wealthier is getting more output for less time. And then you get a choice. What do you want more? Do you want more free time or more money? And, you know, at some point, as, as, as Keynes was saying back when he wrote the, um, I think, Economic Prospects for Our Children, um, I forget that, that's not quite the right title, but the, that's the overall intent. Good one, I'm going to write that book now. But, I mean, yeah, it, it, it all gets down to productivity, doesn't it? I mean, we're not seeing that productivity improve. 
he imagined a fifteen hour a fifteen hour week. You know, mm. by pretty much when you and I are alive now, and it's a hasn't quite worked out that way. So that was Keynes's expectation over time. And the question is, what's gone wrong with it, and why? Why instead of getting that, we're now getting at the other extreme. This is happening all around the world. Um, people in developed countries are being told, "Oh, we've got to push your pension age back." So it was going to be pension at sixty. Uh, and now it's 65, and then it's going to be 67, and finally it's 70, meaning you don't get guaranteed state support for yourself until you're 70 years old. And isn't that uh, a good use of state resources? No, it bloody well isn't, uh, because, again, if you look at people working in manual labour, and I'm, I've got my own specific experience of this right now, if I was a manual worker, I would be having a bloody hard time right now because I'm getting arthritis in my hands, I cannot close, I cannot form a fist with my right hand, haven't been able to for about six years. Um, I'm starting to lose the same in my in my left hand, which is the one I actually use, thank God for tennis and important activities like that. Um, <laughs> but a, a, but a, a manual worker, uh, that'd be it. They can't do the work anymore. Yeah. So we're, we, well, the state actually, will still pay. They'll have to pay, um, they have to pay them unemployment benefit rather than well, they, what they get well, they're discussing things like New Start in Australia, which you know, people up to the age of 65 have been put on what's called New Start, uh, where they've got to be writing, uh, it, it, it's, it's penalising them for it. So they've got to be writing multiple job applications per week yeah. for jobs that simply don't exist in proportion to the number of old people looking for them. Uh, they'll get rejected on an ageist basis, even though they're told it isn't ageist, and they should be doing the work in the first bloody place because they've got, you know, I, I, I literally know one of my, my family members has one leg. Uh, and until he turned 65, was being pushed onto a new start uh, because they saw him as, as work capable. You know, if a 64-year-old man on one leg starts walking towards you saying he wants a job in your factory, um, you're going to find some polite reason to deny him the position. Yeah. So it, it's insane. So it is, it, is, it is insane, isn't it, that, that we are sort of on the one side saying, yeah, we're going to get mm. people working longer. Uh, and longer in terms of the week, but also longer in terms of their lifetime. Yeah. Uh, so what's gone? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yet we want to do it the other way around. So what's gone wrong? Yeah. And it and it is that it does get down to that question of productivity, doesn't it? Because the reason that was given by John McDonnell was, well, if you look at the French, the French are more productive than the UK, so they actually do in four days what it takes the UK to do in five. Australia, by the way, is slightly less productive, I think, than the UK. So, yeah. uh, uh, so. Uh, boosting productivity is is part of the reasoning and in fact you know some people say well yeah if i only work four days rather than five i probably would achieve the same well this, this is where our definition of productivity brings us astray and this this comes back to my work on energy now mm. because i think it's ridiculous to talk about labor productivity okay i think it's a ridiculous concept because how much more productive are you than a roman slave now uh, if, 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 you know, if I tied you to a, to, a, to a wall and said, okay, you know, chop, you know, chop down all the trees you can reach with your axe, uh, I reckon the Roman slave would outdo you. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, in terms of calorie, calorie capacity and not to mention motivation, um, the, there's been no change in the physical productivity of unskilled labour since the year dot because there's a fundamental energetic limit, limit to humans. We, uh, by the looks of it, we can sustain something equivalent to about uh, 90 watts of energy, which is slightly less than the energy of an old incandescent light bulb. Uh, that's, we can manage that for six, six to 10 hours and that's it. 
um, that that's exhaust our energy capacity, and that hasn't changed over time. Right, but we are What's using that energy less efficiently, clearly, because we are becoming less yeah. productive. But it is a nonsense when we start looking at things like GDP per capita and uh, you know by, well, by but, our but, work, but, because because I'm picking but, up the kids later on today. I've just dropped them off, and then I've got to go. You know, got you know a whole load of stuff related to the house. Here I am talking like the housewife I am uh, for a big chunk of the day, as well as holding down a few jobs. Uh, but the you know all that uh, all the stressful stuff actually is all the family stuff that's not counted as part of GDP. Well, the thing is what's actually happening is it's the energy that we're consuming has increased dramatically. Mm. The energy output that we that we put out of that has, has fallen consistently because overall, no matter how well fed you are, no matter how many lights your house has, you can't put in more than 90 watts of energy uh, over a 10 to 8 hour, 8 to 10 hour period uh, as a human laborer. Uh, what's changed is the machines we're using. It's the machines that have made us more productive and the energy processing capability of those machines that matters. And when we measure labor productivity, what we're actually measuring is the labor of the energy throughput capability of the machines we have to the energy capability of the humans. Now, the energy capability of humans has not changed one jot, no. but the energy passed through the machines has changed dramatically. But that's why we go into the argument that we're going to work less because machines are going to do well, more. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we should have been doing. In fact, uh, Two, two things have happened. One is that the uh, the rate at which we're improving those machines has slowed down because we're putting more and more of our money into financial speculation rather than just speculating about you know, building new and industrial technology and so on. Mm. Uh, and the second is the increase in, and this thing comes back to how we finance that. This is something which comes out of my own work in modeling uh, Minsky's financial instability hypothesis, the increase in private debt has been paid for by the workers. They're getting a lower share of income. And what it means is, politically, of course, their power's gone through the floor, political power, not not uh, not, not what's, when they're not the jewels per second they can put into working, but their political power. Yeah. And they're getting screwed. And in that situation, uh, the, the capitalists who are, well, the, the bankers really who are on the top of the whole pile are saying that the workers have got to work harder. Uh, what really is an argument about the, the distribution of income uh, going in the favour of the, of the rentier class rather than in favour of the workers. Yeah, they've become wage slaves. So we talked about this before. They're almost like serfs, aren't they? You know, we're going, we're yeah. going down that road. But I mean, if, if, so if you introduced a four-day a four week, um, then... You know, one argument says, well, okay, labor costs are going to go up, prices are going to go up, people's wages don't go up by the same amount. So, uh, you know, people are worse off if they do go up by the same amount, then prices go up further. And then you have this uh, upward spiral of wage push inflation. But the counter to that is what you're saying is that actually, well, labor costs go up. So companies go, well, we still want to make the same profit margin. Uh, maybe we need to introduce more improved productivity with more machinery and smarter and, and intelligent technology. And if you take a look back at the history of the Industrial Revolution, one of the questions is, why did it begin in Scotland? And uh, it appears that the answer is that the wage prices in Scotland were too high. Now, if you look at the um, the spinning jenny, which is the first major invention of the textile stage of the Industrial Revolution, that uh, was the machine, which meant that rather than one person spinning one wheel to create, to turn, to create thread, out of fibre, uh, you had initially one person turning six wheels, uh, and then that became mechanised, and you had the steam section, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, it turned out that the amount of work involved in designing the spinning jenny, in the very first instance, uh, and then putting one worker onto that machine, uh, that worker with one machine 
uh, cost less than, of course, six workers with six machines. But if you went to France, that wasn't true. The wages mm. in France were lower. And in fact, the spinning jenny would not have been a profitable invention uh, in France because uh, the labor it displaced uh, would have would have cost less than the machine itself. So it simply wouldn't have been worth inventing the spinning jenny or even buying one in France at the time. So in that sense, high wages can be a spur to firms industrializing. And this is like a symbiotic relationship that changes over time, uh, which is a major part of Marx's own thinking about what causes cycles in capitalism. Mm. So this said when you yeah. So this so this lack of growth in productivity is because I mean I think the point you're lack trying, of machines being lack of machines because we're relying yeah. on humans that are not as productive as machines yeah. and uh, so if we rely less on humans and we want to rely less on humans so why don't we just do it so that does yeah. become an argument in fact you would begin yeah. to wonder why stop at a four day week why not a three day week on that basis yeah and that sort of pressure says if you want to if you want to be remain competitive you've got to continue improving your technology and your machinery over time yeah. and uh, there are some you know classic instances around the well, but this has been done very effectively. It wasn't the only reason, Lee Kuan, you increased wages by 27% overnight in, in Singapore in 1970. When was that? 1977, I think. Um, but it was a major factor saying if you want to, we want to become a high wage economy, a high industrial economy. And if you want to make a profit here, you can't do it on low wages. You've got to do it on technology. Mm. Um, it also has nothing to do with moving Malaysia out of Singapore. But um, but that was a very effective strategy at the time. And again, it implies when, when you look back over time. So the, the, the mistakes that people make by saying high wages cause low productivity um, is to imagine, first of all, that the increase in costs because you are now paying more for your workers is not compensated by an income and in income because workers from other companies are now spending more money on you. Uh, so that's leaving out the macro impact and it's ignoring the, the the competitive role in that sense between workers getting too, uh, you know too high a share of income for capitalists liking one response to that is to industrialize mm. and that's what gives so, you an increase so why can't companies do, doing this yeah. already so because you look so there's an example in in New Zealand perpetual guardian which is a company that manages family trusts and like it's in the uh, yeah. in the in the finance sector boo uh, they they tried did that for you uh, they trialed a uh, a four day week over two months late last year and it was studied as well by academics before and after they found the stress levels fell 7% life satisfaction increased five percentage points the percentage of employees who felt that they could successfully manage their work-life balance went from 54 percent to 78 uh, percent and a lot of people would look and say that's all fine but you know the counter to that is well that's all good so long as they've still got a job at the end of it but I mean if they if they increase it I mean it makes the point doesn't it if we increased uh, mechanization or automation and use smarter technology um, then people would be working less, they'd be happier. Companies that are doing that, therefore, would be getting better people. So why aren't they doing it? Well, but again, because it comes down to the individual versus collective. The uh, individual, you see the cost involved in doing it. The collective is the benefit of an improved technology over time and and the, and the power distribution, and this is time, political power inside society. And if you go back to the 1950s and 1960s, which is the golden age of capitalism, uh, then that was also a period of, of rapid industrialization and a relatively high worker's share of income. Of course, lower um, in terms of absolute income than today, though that increase in, in average working class incomes in America stopped in 1973. Um, so there's been no improvement in the last 40 years for American mm. uh, 
effectively effective take-home pay has stagnated. Um, it's more a political shift that people are worried about than the actual economic. And if again, if if you our ambition as a society should be that over time more is done by machines, the less is done by humans, and overall the overall standard of living rises because capitalism. Uh, is a is a collective private enterprise. It is not just the case that you know. Uh, it's not just you 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 build on the infrastructure created by the remainder of the system. And being a capitalist in America is a lot better than being a capitalist in um, in Zimbabwe. Not because American capitalists are better than Zimbabwean capitalists, but because the infrastructure that the rest of the society, both private and public, provides in America is far greater. And you're building on a far higher base. Yeah. If I am worse off financially as a result of this. I mean, the, 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 there's a difference between being well-off and being uh, financially well-off, isn't there? I mean, we always tend to think in, in terms of money, but I gave those figures showing that people felt they had better work-life balance. And if I've got less money coming in, um, presumably we'd just spend less on houses. If we, if we, if we, supposing we, I mean, we spend 30% of our income on housing, uh, and uh, that's the average for people with mortgages. If, if income was to fall by 20% from us working one day less, then presumably we'd have 20% less to spend on mortgages. So house prices would go down. Uh, we actually wouldn't be an awful lot worse off financially and we'd benefit, you know, and we'd get house prices in check. And that's a major factor. Again, if you take a look at the um, the amount of money going to the fire sector, that's really um, the real parasite in, in, in capitalism isn't the workers, it's the financial sector yeah. and the insurance included in that as well. The, it's, it's one thing people don't realise, the, the term fire, the fire sector, uh, is actually something straight out of the American national accounts. It sounds like finance, insurance and real estate. And it's a separate division of the American, recorded the American data uh, from mm. the manufacturing sector and the, and the rest of the services sector. And the growth in that sector fundamentally is when we were all the money is gone. And of course, increasing uh, pay, including uh, women's, women's liberation, meaning that women got jobs as well and households went from one income to two income, fundamentally turned up in higher house prices. Yeah. It well, well, yeah and that was actually the point I was leading to, the fact that we've yeah. gone from... Um, 10% of household spending in 1960, these are figures from the ONS in, in the UK, 10% of household spending in 1960 went on housing costs, that's averaged out, to over mm. 20% today. So that's average. So there some, some people who are not paying any housing costs because they've paid off their mortgage, which is why it's 20%, mm. not 30%. We've gone from 10% to 20% from 1960 to today. And of course, over that time, we've also gone from, you know, most households now having from only having one income earner to having two or three uh, and even with that increase in the number of people and therefore the amount of money that's coming into the household, they're still spending a high, much and a double the proportion of it on uh, paying, for the, paying for the housing costs. Yeah, and so that we've, what we've had is what should have been an increase in take-home pay has been an increase in the price of housing, an increase in the level of private debt, and an increase in money going to the economy's parasite, the fire sector, mm. rather than to its engine room, the manufacturing sector. So another benefit, and then the individ the fact that individually we are going to be happier and also more productive. Forty-five percent of Britons reckon they'd be more productive in a four-day week, uh, less time, you know, walking and talking around the water cooler, presumably more time spent getting on with the job. And you know, you talk to uh, any woman who's got kids and, and they'll tell you how productive they are because they because they have to be to try and squeeze everything in yeah yeah and this is the uh 
the error in, in focusing upon saying we've got to get more out of the workers. The workers are already being totally screwed here. Uh, is the diversion, it's the finance sector that's too big, and a major reason for that, of course, is too much private debt, and also that's been mainly manifest in higher house prices, which then, of course, mean higher cost of housing. So it's a, it's a great little way to argue that it's all about the workers not being productive enough, uh, which is where we started the discussion. It's a great little way to distract from the least, not even productive, but parasitic sector, a finance sector that's too big. Mm. Ironically, the country in Europe that is least confident that it would be more productive from a four-day week is Norway. 28% said that they would be more productive with a four-day week compared to 45% in the UK. The reason might be that Norway is already one of the most productive countries in the world. I'm not, I'm not really quite sure why, but they've got $105 GDP per capita in 2018 compared to uh, just over 100, for example, for the UK. You mean 100,000? Uh, yeah, 100,000. So yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, the thing, again, if you go to Norway, and, and I do that fairly regularly, it's a very industrialised economy. They very effectively use their oil surplus, uh, partly during the, the world's biggest, I think it's the world's biggest sovereign, sovereign, uh, sovereign fund, mm. but they they also uh, dramatically industrialised, and so the technology that's built a lot of those uh, offshore oil rigs is, in fact, Norwegian technology. So they they and and the level of infrastructure and so on is superb. So it's it's industrialised, and then the people themselves are getting the benefit of that industrialisation. They've already have uh, you know fairly they haven't been as stressed out by excess work hours and increasing ages for pensions and so on as, as the as the Brits have. And of course the other other point about how hard Brits are working and people in you know America and the other Anglo Saxon countries as well, um, comes down to what David Graeber calls bullshit jobs. Yeah. There are a lot of people out there whose position is really to fatten up a hierarchy and make the boss above you look better, uh, doing work that is fundamentally useless. Well look and I so- came I came back having, you know, as you know, lived in Australia for twenty five years, came back to Britain, I was astonished how long it takes to get anything done in this country so for example we're buying a house at the moment it's taken three months so far for the land registry office uh to pull their finger out and uh and and issue the necessary paperwork because there's been a change in the border with uh, the property next door three months and and still we have no idea how long it's going to take so uh yeah there's a lot of people in the uk very good at moving bits of paper around i'd suggest uh yep. so, so they could be more productive perhaps or perhaps they would make no actually with those people it would make no difference whether they're there for five days or four days because getting bugger all done anyway Anyway. <laughs> yeah, and so there's a lot. We have this myth that everybody working in a job is productive, mm. um, and in, like in manufacturing, and that's that's the way the economic theory builds its models. It presumes everybody's working in in a, in a factory. Uh, yes, you're a number of hours uh, attached to a machine, putting a you know putting a tweezer into um, to make a thermostat inside an air conditioned air conditioning plant. Uh, if you're not there putting the, the thermostats in, then the machines don't come out the other end. And there's a, a link between the amount of manual labor you put in and the productivity of the, the factory itself. But uh, with, with something like about you know 70% or so of the workforce working in clerical jobs of one description or another, um, it, it, it just doesn't have the same link with physical productivity. And a lot of those jobs, as, as, as David, David, about 30% or 40% of people thought they, if they didn't do their job, the world would be a better place. So we, we have you know, we, we, we have a stressed out workforce doing lots of work, which is unnecessary. Yeah. And because we have the wrong explanation of what labor productivity actually is, we think we're going to make them work harder to get more output. So no, we need more machinery, more technology, and share the benefits of that through shorter working hours 
and yeah. higher wages. And if we did have if we did have shorter working hours, and we thought, well, like, and the argument is, well, okay, that's going to add to labour costs because we're going to need to employ more people to fill those hours that you're not working. That's a bit of a problem, isn't it? Because UK unemployment at the moment is at 3.8%. In the US, it's at 3.6%. Uh, if we work 20% less, we'd actually need 20% more jobs by that argument. There's no one around to do them. Yeah, but at the same time, uh, what we then have is a, a, a much a greater impetus to let's replace those people with technology. Exactly. And, yeah. and that's what's happening. I mean, like my, my, one of my favourite examples I, I, in a, the article, the paper I wrote on uh, a note of the role of energy in production, uh, one thing I used in that as a footnote was an example of a woman working in a, the, the example I've just given, an air conditioning factory, uh, where her job was to insert a tweezer-like device, which is part of the thermostat for the air conditioning unit, and she did that thousands of times a day. Now, that is the the classic vision of an unskilled worker, and the only question is, why haven't they put together a machine to take her place? Mm. And the reason is because it's cheaper to have her doing it than making a machine that does it. Uh, but we, we end up with... Um, with with trivial jobs coming out of that, if the, the higher wage, there's an impetus to then develop the machine that replaces the human that does that, and you start getting the productivity spiral, which is a large part of why capitalism has been so successful. Yeah. And look, there's other flow-on benefits, obviously. Even if we did four days and still did the same number of hours, but we did it in four days, so we did 10 or 11-hour days, then... Um, you know, there's arguments that actually you'd get more time to finish work in that 10 or 11 hours that you couldn't do in seven or eight. But more importantly, less commuting time, less fuel mm. use, less office resources per person. There's a there's a there's a lot you know a lot of unnecessary expenditure related to the five day working yeah, week. Yeah, and uh, of course, if you go back to the early days of the industrial revolution, the only thing that stopped it being a seven day working week was religious laws. Mm. Um, so you're, you're forced to take the Sabbath off, and then the big battle was to get uh, one more day, and then to go from a forty eight hour week to a forty hour week, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, that so, is the definition of a social progress. Right. Well, we just need both. three religions that all insist on having a different day of the week off, and then we've that's got a great idea we, everybody should have at least three religions we were with giving three days of the week when they simply can't go to work they've got to be back praying keenism you know, like Keen, keenism and, um, always insist on, actually no hell no starting to talk about you just having a religion then you're going to have a cult and next to, we're going to start shooting each other look i remember a three-day week and you probably well you won't because you went in the country but in the uk in 1974 i was just 10 years old but i remember it very well we had it was a time when there was industrial action by the coal miners that had hit electricity supplies at the same time that opec had put the embargo on anyone who was supporting israel in the yom kippur war and so fuel was rationed the supply of electricity to any commercial premises was limited to three days a week so companies couldn't work any more than three days. We had rolling power cuts to individual households. TV went off at 10.30 each night. The streetlights were normally not on. Uh, pubs were closed. Uh, it was, as you might imagine, the recipe for the procreation of a nation, which is exactly what happened. <laughs> it was, so another side effect of the four-day week, of course, could be more populations. We might get a baby boom at the end. Oh, of it. that's how we have more contraception as well. Uh, and this, this, this comes back to the real cause of what actually productivity amounts to, and that's increasing the amount of energy. Uh, that we can apply to doing a particular task, and uh, and then like and, and that applies to the consumer goods that we use. Uh, you know, electric toothbrushes have replaced manual ones, not because, uh, it, uh, largely because you can put more energy against your teeth using a 
using a, a battery-powered toothbrush. Um, you know, uh, jackhammers have replaced the pickaxe because the jackhammer's power is far greater than the pickaxe. That is the actual increase in, in productivity. Right. And it's the, but it's does the, that apply, the, though, if you're not doing anything? So if the human being who was doing something in a factory is now slumped in front of the TV set, then they are not using any energy for productive purposes and they're using more energy for the TV. Plus, there's the energy being used being consumed by the machine that's doing the job that they used to be doing. Yeah, but I think what I'm saying is the availability of energy that is the real issue, mm-hmm. and we've completely ignored that. That is is, is 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 part of economics by not understanding the role of energy until very recently, and of course it hasn't gone into in mainstream economics at all yet. Um, but that's all else our bind because we keep on talking about growth and income and so on and so forth. The real cause of that has been an increase in energy consumption. And now, of course, we're reaching the punchline where the energy consumption itself is the threat to the viability of the planet. And we may be forced for that reason, the one you've just mentioned, the unavailability of energy may force us to ration and force us to have that reduction in working time. Um, so rather than getting there in a sensible fashion, typical humans will be forced into it by circumstance. Well, I do think actually, you know, the it, paint, it, it paints an, an astonishing picture, doesn't it? What happened in the UK in 1974, and you'd, you'd think this would be an awful time with all those rations. But I do think actually, I mean, I was only ten, so I don't really know. But I remember my dad was around a lot more, and I, I suspect the prevalent mood in the country actually was, apart from you know, well, the, look, look what the unions are doing to us, which wasn't wasn't good for the union movement. But on the on the other side, people were spending more time with their families, and so it was probably a good thing. Yeah, yeah, and then ultimately, it's, what I see is the ultimate um, situation for humanity is, is if we survive the ecological crisis that's approaching us, uh, it's a world where most of us have to find things to do uh, because we're not needed for the manual, the physical labour of production anymore. Mm. That's the only long-term sustainable situation because that's the only if you, if you, the only way to make humanity in the extremely long term, and I'm talking the next ten thousand years and beyond. Uh, survive is to stop us producing waste on the planet, which means we produce our goods and services off it. Um, that's the only long-term solution to the energy load we're putting on the biosphere. And if we do that, then you're not going to be going. You know, you, you're not going to be commuting to uh, an asteroid uh, on a daily basis. That that actually defeats the entire purpose. So most of us are not going to have a job. Um, basing income on jobs is not going to work. We have to find another way to distribute what humanity produces, ultimately, while still maintaining an innovative social system. And that is the real challenge. And And the, the direction we're going in at the moment of re- increasing working hours because people are doing you know, multiple jobs in, in zero hours contracts and so on, of pushing pensions back so people are working past the point where their hands can actually even hold a manual device. Um, that is a sick society and we need to change direction. All right. Well, we'll leave it on that. So it seems like a, you know, a, a, not an insurmountable aim then, a four-day week. In fact, the way you've just pitched it, it seems quite moderate to say a four-day week within 10 years. Yeah, but it'd be quite moderate if, but if it would require us to start industrialising again. And of course, what the UK has done in the last 30 years is let its manufacturing sector fall from 20% of GDP to 10. And it doesn't have the capacity to make the machine tools and so on. It's not the leading edge in terms of development of, of new technology. That's America's taken over that mantle from Japan. Uh, it's got a lot of work to do. And that, that, that work in the meantime, but the work is directed at replacing human labour, not making human labour work longer hours. Yeah, the other thing is, what what are they going to do in Britain with their extra day a week? You know, there's only so many National Trust properties you can uh, visit. There's uh, it's only so many pubs you can sit at. 
I, I, I'm, what do you do with your extra time? But that's a question for another day. Good to talk, Steve. Uh, and uh, we'll catch you again very soon. Thank you. Okay, mate. Yep, bye. As they yep. say, answers on a postcard. What are you going to do with all this extra time? Uh, not just making babies, hopefully, because uh, the population can't sustain it. That's it for today. That's another Debunking Economics podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. He's Steve Keen. Back again next week. Thanks for listening. 